I can hear the fireplace. I can hear the gas fireplace. Yeah, I think so. I don't think I've ever heard it before. We have a very, we're very serious tonight. Hey, this is Catherine Losota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event I founded at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens in April 2015. This week on our podcast, we are going to feature the event from December 10th, 2019, with the readers Helen Phillips, Jason Tugaw, and Siri Hustvedt. This is the second appearance at LIC Reading Series for both Helen Phillips and Jason Tugaw. And uh, if you don't know, we've also started a video series with Literary Hub of Alumni in Conversation, and Jason Tugall's featured in our very first episode. So go check that out on the virtual book channel of Literary Hub or on the LIC Reading Series YouTube page. Now, in this episode of the podcast, you're going to hear the readings from Siri Hustvet, Helen Phillips, and Jason Tugaw. And before each author reads, because we are very proud to be in Queens, you'll hear them share a brief anecdote about Queens. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to our next episode. And now let's start with our first reader from December 10th, 2019, Helen Phillips. We're going to start off tonight with a return reader, Helen Phillips. Yeah, Helen Phillips! (laughs) Helen Phillips is the author of five books, including most recently the novel The Need. It's for sale here from Astoria Bookshop. It's a 2019 National Book Award nominee. Her collection, Some Possible Solutions, received the 2017 John Gardner Fiction Book Award. Her novel, The Beautiful Bureaucrat, a New York Times notable book of 2015, was a finalist for the New York Public Library's Young Lions Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. She's the recipient of Arona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and the Italo Calvino Prize. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic and The New York Times and on Selected Shorts. I actually saw a live reading at Symphony Space of Your Story. It was amazing. She's an associate professor at Brooklyn College and lives in Brooklyn with her husband, artist Adam Douglas Thompson, and their children. Um, I love the title that was given to the New York Times review of your book, which is Motherhood is Scary and Crazy and Darkly Comic. So is this novel about it, The Need. Um, in that review, they say, Phillips, as careful with language as she is bold with structure, captures many small, sharp truths. And she received a starred Kirkus review for The Need that says, the book is suspenseful and mysterious, insightful and tender. Phillips' new thriller cements her standing as a deservedly celebrated author with a singular sense of story and style. Let's give her a singular welcome for the LIC Reading Series. I'm going to stand. Can I be by the fire? Okay. Thank you all so much for coming on a chilly night. Thank you, Catherine. Catherine was, you wrote to me about my book, and it meant so much coming from you because you have two young children the courage it would take to read this book at that stage in your life. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) you'll see. Uh, Well, I'll be reading the first chapter, but okay, so is this where I tell my queen story? So the last time I did this reading, this, this aspect of the reading gives me some anxiety because I don't really have a good queen story. The last time I was here, I can't remember who it was, but some guy told an amazing story. He had grown up in Queens and he had this elaborate story about being bullied or thinking he was going to be bullied by some gangster, but then the gangster ended up helping him out? In the audience. Oh, hi! There you are! (laughs) I'm sorry that I couldn't remember if it was you or if it was the other guy we read with. Um, Maybe I should tap you to come up and retell that story. (laughs) Um, That's really funny. 
I, that story was a great queen story in contrast to my queen's factoid. <laughs> uh, there used to be this whole island that disappeared. It was off the coast of Queens. It was part of Queens. And it disappeared in a hurricane in the year 1893. There was a hurricane, this, oh, this place called Hog Island, a one-mile-wide island, um, sitting 1,000 feet off the shore of the Rockaways, big hurricane, never, never to be seen again. So it's, well, it's a good factoid because also we think so much about the shoreline now, and I had never realized that there have been other lost islands in this area. So, yeah. Um, and they were at one point some queen, they, weird things were washing up on shore, like old um, whiskey bottles and things like that that were on Hog Island. So, so read up on Hog Island. I was excited about that factoid, but it's not as cool as your story. Um, okay. So I will read from the beginning of the need. And since it's a beginning, it needs no explanation. I'll read the full first chapter. She crouched in front of the mirror in the dark, clinging to them, the baby in her right arm, the child in her left. There were footsteps in the other room. She had heard them an instant ago. She had switched off the light, scooped up her son, pulled her daughter across the bedroom to hide in the far corner. She had heard footsteps. But she was sometimes hearing things, a passing ambulance mistaken for Ben's nighttime wail, the moaning hinges of the bathroom cabinet mistaken for Viv's impatient pre-tantrum sigh. Her heart and blood were loud. She needed them to not be so loud. Another step. Or was it a soft hiccup from Ben? Or was it her own knee joint cracking beneath 36 pounds of Viv? She guessed the intruder was in the middle of the living room now halfway to the bedroom. She knew there was no intruder. Viv smiled at her in the feeble light of the faraway street lamp. Viv always craved games that were slightly frightening. Any second now, she would demand the next move in this wondrous new one. Her desperation for her children's silence manifested as a suffocating force, the desire for a pillow, a pair of thick socks, anything she could shove into them to perfect their muteness and save their lives. Another step. Hesitant, but undeniable. Or maybe not. Ben was drowsy, tranquil, his thumb in his mouth. Viv was looking at her with curious, cunning eyes. David was on a plane somewhere over another continent. The babysitter had marched off to get a Friday night beer with her girls. Could she squeeze the children under the bed and go out to confront the intruder on her own? Could she press them into the closet, keep them safe among her shoes? Her phone was in the other room in her bag, dropped and forgotten by the front door when she arrived home from work 25 minutes ago to a blueberry-stained Ben, to Viv parading through the living room chanting, birthday, birthday, with an uncapped purple marker held aloft in her right hand like the Statue of Liberty's torch. Viv, she had roared when the marker grazed the white wall of the hallway as her daughter ran toward her. But to no avail, a purple scar to join the others, the green crayon, 
The Red Pencil. A Friday night beer with my girls. How exotic, she had thought distantly, handing over the wad of cash. Erica was 23 and buoyant and brave. She had wanted, above all else, someone brave to look after the children. Now what? Viv said, starting to strain against her arm. Thankfully, a stage whisper rather than a shriek. But even so, the footsteps shifted direction toward the bedroom. If David were home in the basement practicing, she would be stomping their code on the floor five times for come up right this second, usually because both kids needed everything from her at once. A step? A step? This problem of hers had begun about four years ago, soon after Viv's birth. She confessed it only to David, wanting to know if he ever experienced the same sensation, trying and failing to capture it in words. The minor disorientations that sometimes plagued her, the small errors of eyes and ears, the conviction that the rumble underfoot was due to an earthquake rather than a garbage truck, the conviction that there was something somehow off about a piece of litter found amid the fossils in the pit at work, a brief flash or dizziness that, for a millisecond, caused reality to shimmer or waver or disintegrate slightly. In those instants, her best recourse was to steady her body against something solid, David, if he happened to be nearby, or a table, a tree, or the dirt wall of the pit, until the world resettled into known patterns and she could once more move invincible, unshakable through her day. Yes, David said whenever she brought it up. He knew what she meant, kind of. His diagnosis, sleep deprivation and or dehydration. Viv squirmed out of her grasp. She was a slippery kid, and with only one arm free, there was no way Molly could prevent her daughter's escape. Stay right here, she mouthed with all the intensity she could infuse into a voiceless command. But Viv tiptoed theatrically toward the bedroom door, which was open just a crack, and grinned back at her mother, the grin turned grimace by the eerie light of the street lamp. Molly didn't know whether to move or stay put. Any quick action, a hurl across the room, a seizure of the t-shirt, was sure to unleash a scream or a laugh from Viv, was sure to disrupt Ben, lulled nearly to sleep by the panicked bouncing of Molly's arm. Viv pulled the door open. Molly had never before noticed that the bedroom door squeaked, a sound that now seemed intolerably loud. It would be so funny to tell David about this when he landed. I turned off the light and made the kids hide in the corner of the bedroom. I was totally petrified, and it was nothing. Beneath the hilarity would lie her secret concern about this little problem of hers, but their laughter would neutralize it, almost. She listened hard for the footsteps. There were none. She stood up. She raised Ben's limp, snoozing body to her chest. She flicked the light back on. The room looked warm, orderly the gray quilt tucked tight at the corners. She would make mac and cheese. She would thaw some peas. She stepped toward the doorway where Viv stood still, peering out. Who's that guy, Viv said. That's the end. <laughs> Keep it going for Helen Phillips. Oh, man, I've read it, and I still got chills with that last line. Uh.
It's yeah. So I read that when uh, I, my son just turned three and my daughter was maybe three months old. <laughs> um, it's it's so it's so brilliantly done. And even that line, I'm just even remembering things about it of those early early days of motherhood where you're just like not really sure if you're thinking straight and your husband's saying oh, you're just sleep deprived, you're just dehydrated, which is probably true. <laughs> but also, there's things happening in your brain. At that time, and it's just, it's a it's an amazing thriller. Um, this is one of my favorites this year. You guys have to get it. You have to get it, it's here. So, thank you, Helen. We are, we are gonna go with our um, next reader, and um, Jason Tugaw, everybody. Jason does write in many genres, and he has been here before for his memoir, which we have for sale here. Um, but let me read this bio to you. Jason Tuga is the author of The One You Get, Portrait of a Family Organism, which is winner of the Zank Nonfiction Prize. He's currently completing a novel, or perhaps recently completed a novel, called Summer Isn't, as part of his mission to write about the brain and identity in every genre he can. It's true. He's also the author of The Elusive Brain, Literary Experiments in the Age of Neuroscience, and Strange Cases, The Medical Case History and the British Novel. His work has appeared in Literary Hub, Electric Literature, Out Magazine, and Large Hearted Boy. He blogs about art and science at californica.net. Um, I'm going to quote Scott Cheshire in the back here because he wrote about this book in the LA Times, and he calls it a brilliant and beautiful memoir, and that Jason is his favorite polymath which is, I think, very sweet. Um, I do want to share with you the uh, one, one special thing I know is Jason did recently uh, finish this, um, finish the writing this novel, and we're going to hear for the first time here at the LSC Reading Series tonight him reading from this newly finished novel that he's written. What? That's because it's very special here. But before you read from that, I just want to give him a taste of your style and say that the first sentence, the first sentences in... Jason's memoir are, it begins this, like so. Fuck the baby! <laughs> I shout from the toddler seat of the shopping cart, it's my first sentence. <laughs> Let's hear some more sentences from Jason Tuga. Thank you. Thank you for reading that sentence. And thank you for being here. Um, I, I read Helen's novel, The Beautiful Bureaucrat, and um, have been haunted by it because I work at CUNY, and I learned today that Helen works at CUNY, and now I feel like it is all coming together, and I, a lot of things make sense. Um, and and, and my, my queen's anecdote is related to that in a way. So I've taught it there since like 2006 at Queens College and um, around 2008, I believe, although I don't know what year anything happened anymore, but I th think it was around then, this politician named Anthony Weiner came to speak at Queens College. We didn't know who the fuck he was. Like, right, it was before, you know. It was not that long before, I don't think, but it was before. And I don't know why he was there because I looked it up and he represented parts of Brooklyn. I don't know why he was in Queens. But, um, but, but 
on the day of the event, you know, I wasn't going to go to this, whatever, but on the day of the event, they announced that Bill Clinton was coming to talk before him. And so then it was like a big break from the usual because Bill Clinton was coming to campus and it was like, oh, we feel so special in Queens. Bill Clinton and Anthony Weiner are coming here to see us. And um, there were huge lines and like some students let me and another colleague go in front of them because they were being like gracious to their professors. And a helicopter landed and Bill Clinton came out and they had his book for sale, the bookstore, which I believe is called like My Life. Yeah, I believe that's what it's called. And he got up and he talked effusively about his friend Anthony Weiner and how close they are and all this stuff, right? And we were like, okay, this guy Anthony Weiner, we didn't know who he was, but Bill Clinton loves him, they hang out, right? So, and the reason I'm telling this story right now is that at this stage, one of those men would definitely not be welcome on campus. The other one, I'm afraid to say, he, they would have him, right? But I don't think the college or the bureau or the borough would feel quite so special to have this happen. And I think that that's maybe another side of what's going on. Like, there's a little thing sprouting where, like, Queens means something different when it's not such a special honor that these guys come visit us, right? So that just got me thinking about that. And, and a helicopter. I mean, it would, uh, the helicopter will be an honor if it happens again, honestly, because I, I, I doubt it ever happened before. Okay, so um, this novel that I have, I'm, I'm calling it Barely Finished because I know I'm going to go back in. There's going to be editing and stuff. But it's called Summer Isn't. The, I'm going to read from the beginning. The first chapter is called The Book of Summer. It's my fault. I'm the one who told Ian. I never felt guilt. It wasn't part of my diagnostic profile. Like everything animal, guilt is electric and chemical. Like everything physical, guilt is tiny particles and vast histories. A guilt anatomist would need to measure shit we don't know how to find. It grows in disappointment betrayal, and shame. Feelings that require at least two, that feed on silence, and that travel the more you hide or hoard them. 21 years might seem like a long time for a person to feel guilt, but I wasn't built for it. Summer's story is also the story of my renovation. The events in this book are true enough. I didn't want to change names or identifying details, but I have to protect people I've learned to care about, including those who are dead. You'll notice that I recount events I couldn't have been privy to. I retell stories told to me or written down by others or gleaned from documents in my collection. Somebody has to guess what's going on in everybody's head. That's where the story is. I'm told this will be therapeutic, not the point. Summer should be a book, would love to be a book. All right, the next chapter is called Admissions, and I'm going to dedicate it to Brie Allen Hopper for her recent writing. Um, the Committee of Seven's mission is finite. Stock Easton with 618-year-old humans who will buoy each other, buoy the faculty and staff, the university's reputation, the careers and self-worth of the Seven themselves. 
By the time the seven convene, nearly fi nearly 15,000 applications have been marked deny. They describe those who remain as still swimming. It's the job of the committee members to make the case for their favorite swimmers. They talk a lot about the responsibility of decisions that make and break lives. In the beginning, Easton was giddy with its own daring when it, when it entertained the idea of inviting summer Chelsea Allen through its arches. That much I can figure out. It took some digging to get the dirt in which the giddiness grew before it turned to shit. I'll admit my source, Professor A. Scott J., is not one of my more reliable. Jay's a relic, an English prof, expert in 18th century satire with the mannerisms of a scheming member of some royal court and a wardrobe that might have been stolen from the estate of Truman Capote. He'll become one of, he'll become one of our more serious problems, Summers and mine. But having coaxed him to tell me about the deliberations, I've got to share. I'm Donnie Marks, Donald Graham Marks to the committee a double legacy. They would never have let me in if I hadn't been the progeny of the generous doctor's marks. My parents managed my medical history with the delicacy of spies. They'd foreseen the day when my dimensional diagnosis, as we've come to call it, would be an obstacle. I was a deceitful toddler. The path words, socio, psycho, were first lobbed at me at nine, along with their cousins, empathy disorder, conduct disorder, antisocial personality. According to Dr. Marsha Lord of John Hopkins University, skimpy pathways from my amygdala to my frontal cortex would explain me. But I could become a decent person with help. She reassured my parents that all documentation would remain anonymous. My credentials were not ludicrous. Best private school in South Florida. Test scores nobody would argue with. But erratic grades and a snotty essay on Roland Barthes' mythologies would have drowned me. <laughs> Fortunately, having been bred for it, I looked the part. And we all knew I'd sparkle my way through the interview, my eyes smiling warmth at the Miami attorney who saw a little bit of her younger self in my curious confidence. Summer's stats were weird. And Easton was always looking for eccentricity to pry its sky a little bit wider for the rest of us. 92nd percentile on the SAT, not bad for a homeschooled girl with no GPA. Competitive surfer, raised on a winery in Ensenada, so experienced in farming and viticulture. It was unusual to find digital scans of an applicant's brain in her online file. They confirmed her diagnosis, synesthesia, a rare motor auditory form heretofore unstudied. She could hear movement. She surfed through the world with a private soundtrack. Summer had applied the previous year, and Easton had admitted her. She didn't submit her, her acceptance form and didn't return phone calls from the admissions office. Finally, they got a letter well past the deferral deadline. Her father had died a grueling death from ALS, and now her mother was suffering from colon cancer. She was truly sorry for her silence, but she'd been, able to, she'd been unable to think about anything but her parents. Rebecca Stone, director of admissions, invited her to reapply. Her new application found strong advocates in two of Easton's arch rivals, Rebecca Stone and A. Scott J. Stone, stout granddaughter of the university's first black graduate, 
was taken with the evolving story of this girl raised by hippies, mostly on a winery in Baja, who read Plato and Toni Morrison on Mexican beaches, despite her feral background and cognitive peculiarity, who won three international surf competitions partly because of said peculiarity, who nursed her mother through a slow death, a mother whose biggest regret was denying her daughter a formal education. Jay offered his agreement as if it were a rebuttal. Summer's application felt cheap, he said. Feral, yes, but sentimental. However, her unusual diagnosis would be of interest to the psychology department. <laughs> Particularly Dr. Timothy Ryder, whose re research on synesthesia, while soft in the eyes of his colleagues, was receiving national attention. She hears music when she rides waves, Jay said with a squint, synthesized strings when she snags a swell. The poetry. Nobody was ever sure of his acrid pronunciation of West Coast words implied attraction or disdain. I suppose we must acknowledge that neurodiversity is catching on, and surely the surfing habit is good for some PR. People surf on the Jer Jersey Shore, don't they? I can just see the poor girl's wet-suited image in the alumni magazine. Jay's slights were to be endured, maybe enjoyed. His pomposity provided a necessary component to the Eastern, Eastern formula. In this case, the object of his satire was a man who would become a hero to Summer and me, Professor Tim Ryder, whose recent book, Brain Wonders, Case Histories in Neurodiversity, was making him a minor celebrity on public radio. Everybody knew this Oliver Sacks knockoff could not possibly earn writer tenure, but he'd been profiled in The Guardian and The New York Times. The producers of an award-winning documentary about bees were sniffing Easton's ass, interested in adapting a case from the book. Ryder was starting to receive grants he'd been previously denied. 20 years ago, Ryder had been a promising undergraduate of Jay's, even a protege. It was the late 1980s and closets were springing open in the universities. Young Tim Ryder revered and pitied Jay for the sacrifices of his generation, who'd had to forge lives before it was good to be gay, when queer was a slur, whispered as rebellion only within private circles of friends with shared secrets. He imagined there'd been a real zest in living the clandestine life, fucking in alleys without the terror of AIDS Tim had absorbed as a teen, prancing in lecture rooms under the cover of an effete disposition cultivated among intellectuals of his class. Jay was bemused by the boy's nonchalant openness about his own sexuality. Teacher and student fucked exactly once, when Ryder was a sophomore. They'd been drunk after a literary reading by John Retchie, memorable for the scandal it caused. I flirted with Retchie once in Palm Springs during, winter, during the winter break I started at Foster Corbett. We compared scandals. He told me Jay wrote him a meticulous letter confessing his indiscretion with a promising student. It read like fiction, Retchie said. He kept it with a box of stuff he, he might use for material one day. Their history would end up in the archives of a famous writer. It yoked them. It obligated Jay to be frank with Ryder. I can't help you. They're going to cut you loose, he told him a few months ago. Snip, he said, miming scissors with his fingers. Do not expect tenure. 
But now, the situation had changed. Ryder, it seemed, had a knack for fame, which had always eluded Jay. The elder delivered a new message. You've got two years. It's time to make good on the grant. Publish enough in the right journals. Make them comfortable. They'd like to keep you, if they can. And now he would deliver Summer. He would become Ryder's champion. Summer Chelsea Allen and Timothy Ryder would surely buoy each other and the rest of them, us, a surfer girl with a peculiar brain and an unsanctioned education merited her way into the pile of kids groomed to run your life. The university would invite her to serve as a research subject in the psychology department. Everybody's pretending it, uh, the relationship is consensual, but you don't say no to Easton. Let the booing begin. Keep it going for Jason Tuga. That was awesome. I want more. And that was, <laughs> you dedicated it to your colleague at CUNY in the back. So we're going to have our final reader of the evening before our panel discussion. And it is Siri Husfet, you guys. Siri Husfet is the author of a book of poetry, Reading to You, Seven Novels, The Blindfold, The Enchantment of Lily Doll, What I Loved, The Sorrows of an American, The Summer Without Men, The Blazing World, and Memories of the Future, as well as four essay collections, A Plea for Eros, Mysteries of the Rectangle, Essays on Painting, Living, Thinking, Looking, A Woman Looking at Men, Looking at Women, and a work of nonfiction, The Shaking Woman or A History of My Nerves. Husfet has a PhD from Columbia University in English Literature and is a lecturer in psychiatry at Well Cornell Medical College in New York City. Her scholarly interests are interdisciplinary. She has given numerous lectures at scientific and academic conferences on philosophy, neuroscience, neurology, psychiatry, and literature, and published papers in scientific and scholarly journals. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the International Gaboron Prize for Thought and Humanities, the Blazing World was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Los Angeles Book Prize for Fiction in 2014. Like, we only, as I say, host slackers at the LIC Reading Series. In 2019, she was awarded the European Essay Prize from the Charles Vaillant Foundation for the Delusions of Certainty, an essay on the mind-body problem an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature, and the Princess of Asturias Award in Spain for the body of her work. Her books have been translated into over 30 languages. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm just going to share a couple of things from uh, notable publications. The Washington Post says, Few contemporary writers are as satisfying and stimulating to read as Siri Hustvet. Her sentences dance with the elation of a brilliant intellect romping through a playground of ideas. And her prose is just as lively when engaged in the development of characters and stories and story. And the New York Times says this, um, of memories of the future, this time to find preservation of selves, this dream of plenitude without loss is like a snow globe from heaven. I didn't know it snowed in heaven. Um, a vision of Eden before the expulsion. Mathematically demonstrable, but emotionally impossible. It's dangled just in front of us like a bobble we can't have, but can't stop reaching for, except that Hustvet finds a way to give it to us. <laughs> Siri, give it to us. Let's give it up. 
it's not it's not bitterness, but that was a really stupid review. <laughs> you know, when people have no idea what to say, they just blather. So, my queen story, since I'm always so anxious, I wrote it. So, a long time ago, when I was young, still in my 20s, working on my PhD at Columbia, I was hired as a graduate assistant at Queens College. I was living in Cobble Hill at the time, and my very first semester of teaching, I was given a plum assignment. Remedial English at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yep. The journey to Queens from Cobble Hill took an hour and a half. Give or take. And of course, I had to give because I was nervous. I took the chugging G followed by a city bus. And I had many worries. Could I teach grammar, semantics, and writing? What would my students be like? Added to my pedagogical anxiety was the undeniable fact that I didn't look much older than my students. I was often then, if you can believe it, mistaken for an undergraduate <laughs> when I was at Columbia. To inspire what I hoped would be an image of authority, I wore serious shoes, <laughs> a serious skirt, and a serious blouse, and hoped this costume would catapult me into seriousness itself. When I faced my class that first morning, I looked out at the world, although there were a few white kids from Queens whose high schools or attention spans had failed them badly. <laughs> Most of my students had come from abroad. They spoke Spanish, French, Russian, Chinese, Serbo-Croatian, -Cro Hindi. I really, I remember I had three Haitian girls in my class who were all coming out of a strong French lycée. And I could teach them a grammar like that. I would just explain the difference between French and English, and they flew. I remember my brilliant Czech student, 36 at the time, much older than I was, who had read Melville when he was in the Marine Corps, the American Marine Corps, the man had such terrible handwriting that when he took the test after my class to pass into the regular studies, I had to interpret the, hair, the, the handwriting for the judges. And I remember the young, thin man from Russia who wrote about being beaten by tufts as a child because he was a Jew. It was he who inspired my ruse 
The story he had written was moving, well-paced, and riddled with diction and grammatical errors. After reading it and a number of other papers, I decided I would give two grades, one for content and one for form. No one believes more fiercely than I do that this is an absurd and false division. But saddling my students with low C's and D's, which many of their papers deserved, threatened to mire them and me in permanent gloom. I had to prepare them for classes in which they would be called upon to write lucidly in English. My Russian speaker received an A for content and a D for form. I am here to say that the effect of this dubious doubling was nothing short of magical. Not everyone received A's for content, by the way, but my fulsome praise for their narratives coupled with encouragement about working hard to raise their form to the undeniable heights of their content worked. It was, I suspect, a way of shining a light on what mattered most, the inherent dignity of their stories. It was, <laughs> it worked. I can't believe how well that thing worked. Uh, uh, they were wonderful, actually, uh, it was wonderful. Teaching at Queens for me was a, was a great experience. Uh, okay, I'm gonna read you the first paragraph of the novel and then just a couple of pages from the second chapter. The whole book is actually in the first paragraph, so that's why you're getting it. Years ago, I left the wide, flat fields of rural Minnesota for the island of Manhattan to find the hero of my first novel. When I arrived in August of 1978, he was not a character so much as a rhythmic possibility an embryonic creature of my imagination, which I felt as a series of metrical beats that quickened and slowed with my steps as I navigated the streets of the city. I think I was hoping to discover myself in him, to prove that he and I were worthy of whatever story came our way. I was looking, I wasn't looking for happiness or comfort in New York City. I was looking for adventure. And I knew the adventure must suffer before he arrives home after countless trials on land and sea or is finally snuffed out by the gods. I didn't know then what I know now. As I wrote, I was also being written. The book had been started long before I left the plains. Multiple drafts of a mystery had already been inscribed in my brain, but that didn't mean I knew how it would turn out. My unformed hero and I were headed for a place that was little more than a gleaming fiction. 
the future. I think there's one thing I have to tell you that there is a reference to someone called the Baroness, and it's a Dada artist, Elsa von Freitag Loringhoten, a wonderful Dada artist who made the urinal, by the way. Duchamp's urinal, not his. Chapter two. The young woman who whiled away her late afternoons at the Hungarian pastry shop in early September of 1978 did not go there only to escape the confines of her small, dimly lit apartment or her chanting neighbor or to plan the rest of her novel or to try to make sense of Edmund Husserl, whose mysterious sentences in logical investigations she read over and over again. She went to the Hungarian pastry shop and seated herself at a table she regarded as well-situated because it had a clear view of the door and every person who entered or left the establishment. From that felicitous spot, she could easily glance up from her coffee and her book and take note of any and all interesting strangers. She wild and idled and was known to waste her money on cappuccinos and croissants because she lived in a state of perpetual suspense. She, like her hero, Feathers, spent much of her time in the subjunctive tense, projecting herself into as-if cases and the innumerable illustrious possibilities that awaited her charming company at the least, torrid passion at the most. In this respect, we differ, my former self and I, it was impossible for me to know at 23 that the dreadful phrase, life is short, has meaning. That at 61, I know there is far less ahead of me than behind me. And that while she wasn't terribly curious about herself as herself, I have become curious about her as an incarnation of hopes and errors that had or seemed to have had a determining effect on what I am now. While she was intent on rushing ahead on that imaginary timeline, the one that moves from left to right on the page and chronicles the evolution of organisms over millennia or Roman emperors or the life of Napoleon as if time were space and not something wholly ineffable an invisible motion so enigmatic that to think hard about it means to lose it altogether. I am interested in understanding how she and I are relatives, which means turning around and following the timeline in the other direction because I can't imagine time without spatial metaphors, without backward and forward, without roads behind me and ahead of me, as if I am walking through it. But then my space has only three grubby Euclidean dimensions. Time, the physicists tell us, is the fourth. 
In our plain old human world, the young woman who lifts her eyes when she hears the door open at the Hungarian pastry shop in September 1978 becomes the aging woman who sits here now in September 2016 in her study in a house in Brooklyn and types the sentence you are reading in your own present. One I cannot identify, but over there in Minkowski space-time, the still girlish eye and the much older eye coexist. And in that startling 4D reality, the two of us can theoretically find each other and shake hands or converse together because in the block universe, Time doesn't flow or dribble or leak, and it makes no difference whether you travel into the past or into the future. My husband, Walter, tells me the mathematics work out beautifully. And when he explains it to me, as he has many times, I say to him, the idea is that the motion of time is a cellular delusion what is memory if my earlier self is still out there somewhere unchanged? And then he likes to mention the story Rudolf Carnap reported about Albert Einstein in his memoir. Quote, the problem of now worried Einstein seriously. He explained that the experience of the now means something special for men, something different from the past and future, but that this important difference does not and cannot occur in physics." End quote. <laughs> okay, cannot occur in physics. Um, and Walter finishes off this famous anecdote by noting that Carnap had little sympathy for Einstein's anxiety because he was a hard-assed logical positivist of the Vienna Circle and Einstein's concern for human feeling mystified him. And I always say to Walter, but that meaningful now is nothing. It is as elusive as was and will be, and there is much to be gained from thinking beyond mathematics, and he agrees, because he isn't a hard ass. And the problem of time is not resolved, and that is just one of the reasons why I remain so fond of my husband after all these years. But the frozen block of Walter and his physicist cohorts is rather like a library, is it not? Karl Popper's World 3 out there for all of us. In it, we can leap from after to before at will. If I choose, I can remove Plato's apology from the shelf or pluck up the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven's poems, now printed in a beautiful edition, and if I devise an eccentric system for my library, the two might be neighbors. Socrates explained himself in 399 BC, and then he killed himself, as everyone knows. But only a very few know, even now that the Baroness referred often to suicide in her writings, and that she came from a family of suicides, and that tired and poor she may have killed herself with a newly bought gas stove in her cold 
Paris flat in 1927. Therefore, in my library, Plato, Socrates can kiss the Baroness with the hemlock still on his lips because time is not a problem in the library. Despite the fact that the ugly sage preferred boys and would no doubt have regarded the Baroness as a monster. Temporal coexistence is true of every single book as well. You can hop to page 137 and then back to page 7 20 times over, but the story or the argument is fixed, determined from first word to last. And in this particular book, the book you are reading now, the young person and the old person live side by side in the precarious truths of memory. Here, I am free to dance over decades in the small white space between paragraphs or linger on one bright minute in my life for page after page or toy with tenses that point backward or forward. I am free to follow the earlier self with interruptions from the later self because the old lady has perspective, the young person cannot have. I meet myself on the page then, on the pages she wrote years ago and the ones I am writing now. A young woman sits in the Hungarian pastry shop on Amsterdam Avenue at 111th Street and raises her eyes from her book when she hears the door open and they fall on a handsome stranger as he walks through the door. My guess is that any onlooker, if she or he had bothered to glance even for an instant at the young woman's face, would have seen hope in her expression. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.